Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Hey everybody, welcome to episode number 434 of Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearmsauctions.com, where you set the price on guns, ammo, and accessories. I am one of your hosts, Cheryl Todd. And I'm the other guy, Dan Todd. Our theme is why hunters must protect gun rights. And that seems to be a, why would you even have to say that? I know. It's weird to me. We're going to talk about it. And our guest today is Gabriella Hoffman. Gabby is the director of the Center for Energy and Conservation at Independent Women's Forum. She is a freedom media strategist, award-winning writer, and townhall.com political columnist. She hosts the District of Conservation podcast and... CFACT, original video series, Conservation Nation, and serves on the Professional Outdoor Media Association's Board of Directors. POMA. <laughs> Gabrielle credits her Lithuanian parents who are, who are Soviet Union escapees for instilling a love of freedom, liberty, and limited government to her. Awesome. Awesome. Welcome to the show, Miss Gabby. It's good to finally come on. I know you've been trying to lure me in and now we're making this happen. So it's it's great to talk to you both. I'm excited. And it was so good to see you, Cheryl, in the Phoenix area last week and uh, get to catch up with you and meet some of the women you're involved in. I, I'm really excited by you know what I saw in Arizona uh, from my visit there. So I'm really excited to break down these topics, conservation, Second Amendment with you both today. Well, before we start that, mm-hmm. I would like to know, I mean, Gabrielle, your parents came here. Uh, they went from a, a communist country. They came here to uh, pursue freedom. And what's changed? Why are the people that are coming here now seem to want to bring what they escaped with them and and live with it? I think it's because you don't really see the American fabric so much encouraged anymore. When my parents came to this country, and it's not just them, but it's it's also people who fled, you know, communism elsewhere. Uh, Representative Kwong Win, who we know as well, um, kind of fits into that category as well. And there are many, many people who would agree that uh, what was previously encouraged, you know, assimilating, um, learning the kind of rules of the United States and and wanting to contribute to this country were encouraged. And I think the um, documents, I was looking over the booklets my parents had when, when they were becoming citizens, and it talked about, you know, this type of decorum and these type of, you know, rules and and uh perhaps ideas that should be encouraged and fostered it was interesting to see the government encourage you know patriotism and and wanting to become part of the american fabric i don't know if those documents do that so much today um but i even think it's not so much about people coming to this country but even people fleeing different states so people fleeing blue states to red states Mm -hmm. and they don't leave sometimes their voting habits 
mm-hmm. with them in their states. And they bring, you know, kind of these centrally planned policies or anti-gun sentiments to states that they move to. Uh, but it's interesting, it, depending upon the state, you know, Texas, everyone's like, oh, my gosh, all the Californians, you know, bringing their voting habits. But in one recent election, from what I remember, um, it was actually the California refugees who were voting more for the Second Amendment than even the Texas natives. So I know it, it kind of like de- uh, defies like conventional wisdom. But I don't know, p- maybe we've lost sight as a country what freedom means. I think some people are becoming increasingly comfortable with the government kind of an, having an outsized role in day-to-day affairs, which is what my parents lament often. And we don't see, although polling does show people are very skeptical of government, but there is a very comfortable safety net. People are very comfortable being cushioned and having certain things you know, given to them that they d- didn't necessarily earn, um, mm-hmm. or there's no really reverence for hard work and pulling yourself up from your bootstraps as it used to be encouraged. Mm. A lot of entitlement. And I see uh, some young kids younger than me, like Generation Z, having this kind of entitlement mentality that they deserve to make, you know, a minimum, you know, salary of let's say eighty thousand dollars, and they don't have the work output or the experience to justify such a payment. Or young people don't want to do pro bono work or free job or not free jobs, but rather um, non-paid jobs, which can also offer very good experiences. I am often a, you know, a I often herald, um, you know, that you have to do non-paid work as well, just to kind of appreciate things and, and the skills that you accrue from those experiences. So I think people have just lost sight, whether they're natively born in the United States or they come here. But I've noticed that actually a lot of more um, non-native, you know, assimilated, naturalized Americans tend to be in, in kind of just my anecdotal, you know, observation is this: they tend to be more patriotic than even some native-born Americans. To me, so it, you know, it can depend upon the situation. I want to remain optimistic, you know, whether it's the outflow from re- uh, blue states to red states, um, with that and that that more kind of reads to me, you know, why why we're seeing this because I think uh, Americans unfortunately have lost sight of the the freedoms prescribed to them through the Constitution, God given rights. Um, they don't value living here. They complain, you know, we're we're polluting, we're so terrible, we we're so violent, we have all this stuff. But compared to the rest of the world, we're still very civilized. People still come here by legal and illegal means. Like people are crawling through, you know, horrible conditions, crossing the border, yes, going through these extreme means to come to the United States. If it's so bad, why are they doing that? Thank so you. So <laughs> I, yeah, I think people are just losing sight, you know, of of what this country is, unfortunately. But I think there will be pushback, and it's good to see pushback. Um, especially when it comes to the issues I focus on. I think people see that, you know, not having energy security is a big problem when you have um, environmental policies, which don't encourage conservation, but more so preservation, or that only few select people can enjoy natural beauty or natural scapes. Um, that really is unsettling to a lot of people. So we just have to kind of return to that fabric, um, mm-hmm. obviously being inclusive of everyone in, in a genuine way. And you can be with energy in the outdoors. You don't need to adopt woke policies to be inclusive and welcoming of everyone. Um, same within the gun industry. We've done a great job, I think, as a movement, welcoming people who don't even think like us too. Like we don't want to all be, you know, in an echo chamber. We want people who may not agree with us on everything to also be Second Amendment supporters, champions of true conservation. And people see that, that it is a wel- these are welcoming spaces. Right. So I am a bit encouraged, you know, I'm trying to look at the half glass full type of thing, you know, where, while we do have some problems, yes. I think, um, you know, I think we can pivot back in the right direction. I, I love hearing you say that you yes. are of a younger generation. 
and then Dan and I are, and anytime we can hear these kinds of ideas from, you know, the next generations, it gives us hope that we aren't just a lone voice on the Hill. And when, uh, our expiration date hits for our, our generation that, you know, the other side is just going to be able to walk carte blanche into, you know, completely changing this nation and, and doing away with the, the values that started the nation, you know? Um, so I appreciate that very much. It's so refreshing and- that somebody your age, um, uh, <laughs> has those thoughts because the, a lot of people that we meet are totally dependent on the government. They love the government for giving them the free stuff. And I don't think we could ever be free if we depend on free stuff from the government. Absolutely not. They're it comes in- with carve outs and conditions. It always yeah. does. And For it creates sure. a cycle of dependency. And, you know, I was a full-time freelancer up until recently, and I still do freelancing on the side. And that made me even more, you know, skeptical of government taxing me, taking my hard-earned income for work it had no involvement in. Mm-hmm. And look, I'll pay my taxes. You know, I'm not going to sh- uh, sh- shrug at that or, or shirk my responsibilities, of course, but I'm taxed too much. Like, I think all of us are taxed too much. And the, the more you make, the more you're penalized, mm-hmm. uh, which is crazy how that all goes. Um, and so when, when you're actually at the helms of your own business or your own day-to-day affairs, you have a very different perspective than people who have no connection to their work or mm-hmm. someone else's, you know, employing them perhaps, or someone else's, let's say, um, uh, creating a very cocooned lifestyle for them. Like if it's mm-hmm. trust fund kid, or if it's, you know, someone unfortunately who may have become very dependent on the cycle of government for advancement, um, for many, mm-hmm. many different ways, unfortunately, the cycle of poverty or or something of that nature. But um, no, the more that you get uh, kind of penalized by the government or or you see how much they take away from you, and, and then you see that those monies are not distributed even to good causes, or mm-hmm. it's, it's going to waste or wanton waste or something of that nature. So I think when you are personally afflicted by onerous government policies, then you kind of change your mind. But I've always been pretty conservative, you know, with my parent, my parents and my family background. Um, we were always having a very healthy skepticism of government, not anarchy, of course, but mm-hmm. trusting small, limited government to mm-hmm. be kind of your guiding light um, in all facets, because you have too big of government, it it gets too involved in all your day-to-day affairs, all these different issue areas. And we're seeing that now, unfortunately, with whether it's energy or conservation, the Second Amendment, government having an outsized role in all of that doesn't lead to good outcomes, unfortunately. Well, Absolutely. it looks like I hijacked the show already by asking those questions. <laughs> no, and you right. need to you have some important things you want to talk about. So no, that was that was a great way great, to yes. launch. Um, and you talked about Gabriella, the um freelance work you've done. You have such a an amazing resume. Um, again, not not to keep harping on, you know, your age, that you're a younger person. <laughs> Right. But it's, yeah. it's, it's an impressive body of work that you've done in such a, a short span of time. And I mean, the sky is just the limit for you. Um, and you just recently, I want to congratulate you on a new position that you've taken on uh, with the Independent Women's Forum, the IWF, that I also am very blessed to be a visiting fellow for. I get to write about the Second Amendment and our gun rights and all of that. Um, and yours is very focused on a specific area. So just tell us a little bit about the IWF and this new position that you've accepted. 
Yeah. So I've worked with IWF and I also first began as a visiting fellow about two and a half years ago and didn't expect my involvement with the organization to lead me to here. I honestly just was very passionate about covering energy conservation and also independent contracting, small business issues. And it grew from there and I got more involved. I got to work with a lot of the policy experts and help them deconstruct or help demystify certain things and kind of get creative in my role. And I was rewarded for all my contributions and I, I unintentionally went above and beyond and I really wanted to contribute something. And I've had a great working relationship and I was behind the launch of our center before I took it on uh, officially recently, but I was helping our previous director who is a friend and a mentor. And she's a really phenomenal woman, Amanda Gunusekara, who used to lead the CEC and she was chief of staff at EPA. She taught me a lot about different things and we had great synergy where she didn't know something on conservation. She would go to me and vice versa. And so I was kind of uh, very involved behind the scenes. And um, when Mandy departed, uh, she encouraged me to to look into the role. And, and also um, I was encouraged by a lot of the ladies at, at the organization to look into it. And I couldn't say no. I felt obligated to continue the work that we've done um, since we formalized our center back in February. But Independent Women's Forum, for those who don't know, we've been around for over 30 years and we were established following the Supreme Court nomination hearing of Clarence Thomas. And there was a lot of misinformation painted about him, Justice Thomas, and women, uh, especially left-leaning women, were saying that, you know, by by uh, vilifying him, all conservatives and center-right people are therefore also, you know, anti-woman, anti-this. So our organization was born out of that to say that not all women are monolithic in their thinking. We support limited government. We support empowerment. We support, you know, individualism. And from that, it really has grown into this impressive organization. When I got involved in politics, and I've actually been involved, Cheryl, very early, I got my start at 18. So I've been, I, a lot of people are like, oh, you've done so much in a few years, but it's actually over the course of 14 years, I, I did a lot of work in college and in postgraduate. And so um, even when I was starting out my political career, I had heard of IWF and I was always very impressed by the quality of work, body of work that the organization produced. And in my freelancing career, I was like, I need to probably do something more to to boost my work, get some more credibility. You know, I write a lot. I do this. I, I opinion make. But I was missing something. And so the fellowship really factored in well and, and kind of helped mold me even more into a serious like policy person in addition to journalists and multimedia specialists. So I wanted to make sure I understood the policy that I'm writing about more and what goes into it. And I didn't have a public policy background per se, and you don't need to, to do policy work. And it's, it's nice that they didn't, you know, try to discourage me from growing um, because like a lot of other organizations will not, let's say, elevate you so much unless you have a master's in public policy. IWF does not discriminate in that way. It doesn't care if you have a master's degree or not. If you have the hard, if you show the hard work and, and you do the grunt work and, and um, you know, are able to deliver, they'll reward you. Um, with that. So what I like is that it's it's not constricting. It's not, you know, very, um, how would you say, uh, it, it doesn't care, you know, as long as you you work hard and you have talent and you you agree with the the mission statement, you could really grow. And that's what the visiting fellow program has done. We've we've brought on a lot of women from all different specialty areas. Um, and we are growing our energy and conservation center more, and we'll have some more fellows coming um at the start of the new year, but a lot of people are reaching out to me and saying like, yeah, I would love to be part of the CEC. How can I get involved? And IWF wants to help anyone, whether you, you're a culture writer or a policy expert or a journalist, 
but you have alignment with IWF, the Visiting Fellowship is a great incubator for cultivating up-and-comers, established women, um, everyone and everything in between, regardless of where you live, what your profession is. Um, we like to harness that uh, power of independently-minded women and uh, help them in their career, in their trajectory. And so with the CEC, uh, we tackle, obviously, energy and conservation. And I think the bulk of our work is largely recently been focused on women's issues. So we have Riley Gaines and we do, we deal with a lot of the athletes who have been, you know, pigeonholed and deprived of opportunities because of biological men invading women's spaces. And so that largely takes up a lot of our efforts, but we're trying to inject um, our other areas too. And, and no area is unimportant, of course, in IWF's portfolio, but energy we're trying to to stand. We're going to break out more, I think, in 2024 because energy is very convoluted. It's kind of not so sexy of, of, of a topic. It's really hard to formulate and to market so much. But the the CEC has really stood out, I think, from other let's say outfits for energy and conservation, maybe in the center right space, because both Mandy and I have a lot of media connections. We were able to give tips to different uh, reporters and tell them what we're working on and, and news make and, and, and lead the conversation on some topics that no one else was talking about. So we've been able to help kind of break out on issues and have the media follow our work as well. So we're very irreverent and the CEC wants to make complex energy problems simple. We also touch upon true conservation, you know, um, hunting and fishing as modes of true conservation practices, what that entails, why you shouldn't alienate energy workers because energy workers also are very close to the land that they live on or recreate on. I've met a lot of people and Cheryl, you have as well, uh, through people in the firearms industry. They also go hunting. They also love the outdoors. I see this in the energy industry as well, that they're often vilified for living out their lifestyle, helping to power the country. And what a lot of environmentalists misunderstand and what we communicate through the center is why would someone work in a field that would despoil stuff they love? Um, we have the highest quality environmental standards here in the United States. And that doesn't have to go against you know commerce or having a livelihood. Um, and then it also is coupled with true environmental stewardship, what that looks like. And we often see the environmental left paint people in the center right or conservatives or libertarians or independent minded people as despoilers of the environment. So not only are we trying to prop up the energy industry and highlight their accomplishments and their good work and counter misinformation about, you know, emerging technologies and, and champion um, rather market-based solutions, market-based demand for energy sources. We also like to highlight obviously what does true conservation look like? Why we have to have multiple use of federal lands, why people can, you know, graze and hunt and fish and farm and do all these activities, why that has worked so well and why alarmism, whether it comes from the climate or whether it comes from animal rights activists is very deleterious to American conservation practices. So we try to uh, cover both pendulums equally mm -hmm. and strike a balance because that's what has to entail. Of course, nobody believes in overdevelopment. I don't think I want to develop, you know, every plot of every acre of federal land into an energy project by no means. No, that'd be unacceptable. So that's where um, reasonable, you know, kind of considerations come into place, what conservation really means. But the left has conflated conservation with preservation and some preservation is good. I love national parks. We were talking about the Grand Canyon during dinner. It's, it's a beautiful place. And that type of title should be very specialized. It shouldn't be awarded to every single, let's say, 
federal land because while they may be beautiful, they may not be unique like the Grand Canyon. And when you kind of muddled that definition of what a national park should be versus, you know, BLM land or forest service land, mm-hmm. you don't have those distinctions. Um, not everything should be a national park. And and when you assign more federal control, let's say with a distinction like that, it could also breed mismanagement and we don't want to see that. And we want, and, and with mismanagement, unfortunately comes sometimes a deprivation of access. So the more regulated, you know, something is like a national park, sometimes they like to keep people out. And the goal of a national park is to let people in, to responsibly recreate, to see natural beauty. And so that's kind of where we fall in line and and we're shaping the conversation on convoluted complex topics. We have action centers. We have several verticals. Independent Women's Forum is our education hub. Independent Women's Voice is our kind of uh, political arm where we can weigh in on legislation or different matters. Um, And then we have the Independent Women's Network, which is the vehicle with which um, Christy Narcy and and the Phoenix chapter operate under. And we activate them through both the forum and the voice side through this network. And we have a lot of people very excited about energy and and people have wanted um, a response to energy, a calm, reasonable response to energy and conservation. And tackling the conservation side, we haven't really seen many center-right organizations do that as much. People kind of shrug away from it. They only tackle the energy side. So our center has stood out by also incorporating that conservation side too. So that's kind of an overview of what the center is, why I've been so excited to be involved and why I'm thrilled to be helming it uh, going forward. Well, that is exciting stuff. And it's so needed, you know, again, you know, having a calm, logical welcoming voice on our side to counter the um, outrageous levels of volume and emotion on the other side, I think is um, going to take us a long way. Um, You know, you do have to understand the importance of emotional messaging, but, um, you know, overall, I think people really do want to feed their minds and know that I'm making a a sound decision based on reason and facts and, you know, uh, having a, a voice like yours in that space is so awesome. So you mentioned a couple of times that um, the IWF is welcoming to other people. I was nominated by the the previous writer um, mm-hmm. in, in the space that I occupy. Laura, uh, yes. Laura Carno, who's amazing and awesome. And I love her out of Colorado. Uh, so what are the other ways that people can become involved? Can they sort of nominate themselves? Can they reach out to the IWF and if they have a specific niche that they, um, have an expertise in and their subject matter experts in? Yeah. So we just closed the application for the winter visiting fellow class. So they will have to wait until next term to apply if they're interested in the visiting fellow program. And we should be unveiling the finalists for that um, early next year. I can't, I don't know so much into the process. Our other staff handled that, but um, we will soon unveil our next crop of uh, visiting fellows. And uh, there will be a lot of visiting fellows returning uh, because we're very kind of cyclical in that. Um, it's a very ongoing kind of uh, process that we employ, but um, that is one way to get involved for sure. But also the Independent Women's Network, of course, is a great vehicle to get involved in. If you don't have time to be a visiting fellow or you want to, let's say, focus on your state and locality more so than national issues, we don't limit uh, what women can do or can't do. Um, you know, there are many ways to get involved, but I think those are the the two um, to do. But also with video storytelling, if let's say you live somewhere and you're affected by 
perhaps an issue, maybe a solar project or wind project is coming to your backyard and you don't want, you know, the government to impose these projects in your area and there's local opposition. We're going to be doing something through video storytelling efforts. Um, and, and this is something I, I would want to encourage your listeners and viewers to, to keep in mind. So if, let's say we have a video storytelling project in our center and you're like, Abby, I know someone who's perfect for this. I'm always looking for, for people, whether they're involved in IWN or they could be involved in IWN in the future and get them into that, uh, get them into our, um, orbit perhaps having that, I think having them, you know, participate in, in video storytelling or IWN, or, or maybe they want to convey their story, uh, perhaps of like government overregulating them. And we, we do this really well with a lot of women who have been displaced by biological men competing in their sports or coaches who haven't been able to, you know, be, be, um, honest and, and, uh, and, and to discourage this, I think we have uh, Oberlin college coach who's been, ostracized for defending women's sanctity in, in lacrosse and in the sport that she does. We have detransitioners um, who work with us and tell their story. So if anyone has a story too, and, and wants that to be their first step to work with us, that's, it's an open-ended, you know, uh, exchange. We welcome, you know, people to tell their story and we can convey that through video or we can help, you know, work with you. We, we've worked a lot with sorority women too. I think there was a case in Wyoming as well, where a biological man pretended or, claims that he's a woman and he's not behaving as such. He's using it to creep on women um, living in that dormitory or yes. that sorority house rather. So we've worked with them and, and partnered with them. So whether it's, you know, you have a story and you need it to be conveyed, IWF can come in and help you, um, whether it is in my particular set of issues or not, but we have worked really well um, to help women, help them tell their story to the media for something as urgent as, you know, protecting the sanctity of women. That's awesome. And so the two websites so the IWF is a dot org. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the independent women's network that you can just join and be a member of and start, you know, drawing closer to the the work of the um the group, the organization is IWnetwork.com. And both of those Correct. will be in um Gabby's guest page on our website. Um Moving on and kind of touching back on the title that I've chosen for today's um, episode, Why Hunters Must Protect Gun Rights. I It was a, a, a revelation to me when I realized my Dan and I started in this whole world by having a small little corner family gun shop, um, AZ Firearms in Avondale, Arizona. And you know, as people would come in and, and shop, especially around quail hunting season, you know, that's kind of, you know, when we see the most hunters in our particular little area mm -hmm. of the world, um, you know, you just engage people in conversation. And it was always the hunters that were sort of like, yeah, hmm, we don't talk about the second amendment. Okay. We don't involve ourselves in any of that. We just hunt. And it's like, well, that's great. You know, good for you. But I, I had a hard time understanding why they felt like, well, nobody's coming after the guns I use, so why do I care? And that is not the case anymore. And I still feel like there's this lag in in people that, you know, their main reason for owning a gun is hunting for them understanding um, that, that they really are 
uh, part of this conversation, whether they like it or not. And, and we would like to welcome them in and help give them some tips and tricks and tools on how they can better protect their rights. But, you know, hunters and conservationists try to stay out of this two-way advocacy. I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts, because this is so much more your world, the hunters and advocacy, than mine. Where is that disconnect and what can we do to draw them in? My intention, not only with my previous work and, and how we connected, of course, was through the gun industry as well. And I'm unique, maybe, be, and then this is how I can help kind of bridge the gap between the hunters and the 2A advocates. But I came into hunting as a Second Amendment supporter and someone who had first tried firearms and, and trained to get my concealed carry, went to many shot shows, built a lot of contacts on the manufacturer side, and they would talk about hunting. And I had friends here in the DC area who encouraged me to pick up hunting as well. I was never opposed. I just never had the opportunity to do so. But I think the disconnect, like you said, draws from, this is not going to impact my activity. So why should I care? And we see this a little bit out West, uh, sometimes in Arizona, but I've noticed it's very common, this kind of lackadaisical or maybe dismissive attitude rather in Montana, sometimes in Wyoming, where the people tend to be more conservative in their voting habits and their kind of way of life but they're influenced by the left on environmental decisions, or maybe they're more independent minded. So they could be nominally conservative or nominally, you know, pro the second amendment, but they're influenced by a lot of these kind of lefty environmental groups. So how do you get them away from being captured by this or to understand this? And obviously it's important to caveat this discussion with the second amendment is not about duck hunting. And, and it's very important to hone in on that, that Absolutely. your guns are not because you hunt. It's for self-preservation, for self-defense purposes. That's what the Second Amendment, those 27 seminal words uh, meant for. Um, but where hunting does come into play, we've talked about this offline as well, is through Pittman-Robertson funding. So uh, how, the how let's say you buy guns, and we we're even having a debate, unfortunately, even in the Second Amendment side about we have to defund, you know, Pittman-Robertson, get rid of this. And um, when when people are communicating that, and I'll explain what that what, what that is, um, we're even seeing the anti-gunner say, yeah, let's get rid of this. Let's defund this. So when I hear uh, some people on our side agree with the anti-gunners on this, it makes me very, very concerned. But obviously, so Second Amendment's not about hunting, but where the two can meet and intersect and work together, not only because of Pittman-Robertson, um, which I can explain now, but Pittman-Robertson was a law that was established in the 1930s. Probably one of the very few things I agree with FDR signing into law. He was not my favorite president, <laughs> um, but he he had the fort right. And I think the people at the time had the fort right to put this law into place. And since then, $27 billion has gone back to conservation to all 50 states. And because of those monies from excise taxes largely, uh, largely collected on guns and ammunition, we have seen the bouncing back of commonly seen species. Black bear are no longer endangered. White-tailed deer are plentiful, if not in excess. Uh, elk have bounced back beautifully. Bald eagles even, uh, which we do not hunt, of course. But I'm saying in general, wildlife has also been benefited, even those that we don't hunt um, as well, because of just kind of the care and consideration we have for wanting to see species be healthy and have, you know, symbiotic relationship with them. But um, a lot of species have bounced back because hunters and even anglers had the fortitude and, and fort rightness to recognize if we engaged in market game hunting, hunting everything to extirpation, we will not have animals to enjoy. And I think what people misunderstand about hunting and, and the use of the tool in, in hunting as well, 
is that um, there are many modes of hunting you can do. A lot of people like to do bow archery. Monies from bow archery go to Pittman Robertson as well. There, Some people may hunt if your state allows it with handguns. If it's the best mode for you and, and easy and you do it ethically, go for it. I have had the luxury and opportunity to hunt using an AR platform, a rifle platform. And I find that to be comfortable. I'm not being irresponsible with it. And where, where states allow it, and I think more states should, um, you should allow the AR platform because it's, you know, it's a comfortable experience. You can have more accuracy and it really doesn't impact, you know, any differently than a conventional rifle would, depending upon the caliber. Of course, there may be a little more impact, but anytime that I've shot using, you know, an AR platform, I've had great success. And, and some people are like, well, that's a cop out to use an AR. And I'm like, no, it's it's not unethical. You know, if, if I'm dealing with certain conditions or, you know, if someone is differently abled, I, I've heard from many different people in the industry that have said an AR-15 will help someone with dis disabilities who, you know, may struggle with handling a firearm to have more improved accuracy. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's just a very comfortable platform to use. It's not dangerous. Um, it's not really used in crime very much, much to the chagrin of uh, critics of <laughs> ARs. Um, I've even, I've even used muzzle loaders. I've last year, I went Georgia, uh, whitetail hunting muzzle loader season. And I was able to get a deer through that format as well. I've hunted different styles, you know, in the six years that I've gone hunting. And for me, I don't think restriction restricting, excuse me, different modes of weapons is very conducive to the hunting experience. Like I said, we have to give people choices, true choices. Okay. And then when you're using the firearm, you see that, wow, I won't be able to use an AR for my hunting activities, like this is unacceptable. So I think where we can help kind of fill this disconnect is when people start to see their mode of hunting, the tool that they use regulated out of existence or severely limited. I think that's when, like I said, when you're adversely affected by a policy, mm -hmm. you will change your perspective overnight. We mm -hmm. saw this with people purchasing firearms at the height of the BLM riots in 2020 mm -hmm. and on. We saw non-traditional gun owners. Uh, we saw a lot of, you know, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, women, women mm -hmm. and Black Americans were the, I would say the the demographics that saw the most dramatic increase in purchasers of firearms, ranging from AR platforms, hunting rifles to handguns, mm -hmm. everything in, under the sun. And when they saw that their safety was under threat. They shed previous misconceptions about guns and they purchased them. And people were, excuse me, um, guns were in such high demand, people couldn't get AR. So they settled for, you know, a handgun. So I think when you're personally afflicted, and, and this is where I think hunters will change or, or not become so apathetic to the Second Amendment battle and where we can have synergy between both. And I think it'll take people like me who live in both worlds mm -hmm. and we do exist. And then also communicating um, even to the Second Amendment supporters and saying, you know, Pittman Robertson, as I explained, is not going to infringe on your Second Amendment right. I don't see any any clear evidence. You know, you everyone, the contention point is, okay, let's get rid of the excise tax because it's a tax on your behavior of purchasing a firearm. I have asked my contacts in the National Shooting Sports Foundation, other industry experts, and said, you know, okay, so let's say this excise tax is removed. Does it lead to the you know, lowering of the cost of the gun. They said, no, because this is the manufacturers paying this tax. Mm -hmm. um, so you won't see a diminishment of the price because that's largely determined by market demand and, mm -hmm. and the seller's demand. And uh, what people forget also with Pittman Robertson, I think in most recent years, the monies that have been collected, especially from guns and ammo, have gone to the construction of public target shooting ranges. 
if you live out West or you live in a state where it's largely federal lands and you don't have access to a very nice posh, let's say firearms facility, a private facility, the, the facilities and membership sometimes can be very expensive and a deterrent and a economic, let's say barrier to someone. So if you can go to your national forest or BLM land and publicly recreate there, um, people want to have those options. And, and so you're now seeing those monies more tangibly go to Second Amendment bolstering or Second Amendment enhancing uh, through these public target shooting ranges. And public land should be open to these opportunities and people who shoot on uh, these you know, public target shooting ranges should pick up after themselves. Don't leave any shells yes. behind. I went Please. to, yeah. And uh, when I went uh, fishing a little bit before um, the conference I was in Arizona for, we went to the Salt River and I picked up three uh, expended, um, shotgun shells. And I was like, really guys, you left this, like, you don't, you shouldn't be doing this. Like I, I get irked when people do that. And I don't think it's responsible for them to do that. But, um, you, you do see those monies tangibly going to wildlife conservation, habitat restoration efforts, hunters, education. People don't know that Pittman Robertson funds hunters education. We need hunters education, Yes, those monies to make it affordable. Because remember what we saw recently, the department of education defunded Mm-hmm. school hunting and shooting mm-hmm. sports programs mm-hmm. and people and that actually woke up some people who are hunters yep. too and said whoa they can infringe they're using this gun control mechanism to infringe yep. on my ability to to do hunters education for my kids to learn about responsible stewardship and and hunting and all in archery so i think we started to see people wake up with that with the department of education defunding it with a really awful bipartisan safer communities act the fact that so-called second amendment supporters supported that and didn't understand the unintended consequences that would have resulted from this not surprising to us who who right. are consistent in our support for the second amendment but it was very disappointing that they couldn't see that that could have been manipulated to take away gun rights mm-hmm. to deprive education opportunities and to 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 really um i would say bolster the cause of the gun control activists and which is what they did they gave them the opportunity to infringe on the second amendment through this interesting carve out that they devised mm-hmm. um and they said well this isn't really you know what, what we intended the bill to do but it's like yeah you gave the administration the education department the 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 ability to categorize f- weapons used in hunters education courses as dangerous weapons and mm-hmm. that is where i think people don't sometimes really see the connection, but even instances like that showcase that gun control will affect your hunting decisions. Yeah, true. So we just have to establish that connection. And my hope is with the CEC, with my podcast, with my other efforts, we're highlighting that connection. We wrote a letter recently in support of a bill to uh, take, I think 85% of monies uh, drawn in from suppressors from the NFA tax until we can get rid of the NFA tax, I think this is a good, you know, middle ground approach because it's going to take a favorable administration to get rid of um, that NFA tax on suppressors. But for the time being, if if this law were to pass, um, Independent Women's Voice reasoned that, you know, this is going to go towards, you know, bolstering Pittman-Robertson. It's going to be great. So we have explained, you know, this connection with Pittman-Robertson saying it's not an infringement on your 2A rights um, and that for the time being, this is where the suppressor money can go as well. So we've done and and woven in it already under my tenure as CEC, the connection, uh, why it's important to safeguard Second Amendment rights, and also to have a healthy hunting culture as well. But I think just citing in that Department of Education example, talking about how Pittman-Robertson does not deprive you of your Second Amendment rights, um, you would, if, if it really were the case, you would see the gun industry say, no more Pittman-Robertson. Mm-hmm. I have not heard any manufacturer 
ammo side, firearm side say we need to get rid of it. They, if mm-hmm. they're presented with the evidence, you know, to get rid of it, maybe they would. But so far, they have been very comfortable supporting the law and, and touting the law um, and, and all that. So I, I don't see that. But what does become an infringement with respect to excise taxes when you see what California recently did? Mm-hmm. I think they they hiked up the excise tax to 23% from the 11 or 10% that is currently nominally accepted um, in the United States. So California hiked it and sent those monies. Those additional monies are going to so-called gun safety measures. Mm. So they're using Pittman-Robertson to dilute its intention and then put mm. that money towards gun control. So that's a problem. But And also similarly, where the excise tax model can be abused is when a 1,000% excise tax is proposed, like that of my congressman, Don Beyer, under the guise of promoting gun safety, but it's gun control. So that's where it becomes an infringement when you add to the existing rate. Like I said, the the 10 and 11% rates are acceptable. And I don't think beyond that, it should be taxed anymore um, with an increased percentage because that's where it can get, that's where it will get into infringement territory. And so I think that's kind of a a comprehensive overview of, of how you can reach out to the hunters. And I think, like I said, I think the pendulum is switching slowly but surely because they're seeing that um, you remove you know, any mode of hunting incrementally, it's going to hit your favorite tool next. It could be an AR today. Tomorrow could be your handgun. We say this in the hunting community too. It first will be bears that they try to stop you from hunting Mm -hmm. or predators. Mm -hmm. Then it could be duck hunting. We've seen examples in Australia, in Europe, elsewhere where they ban very commonly accepted modes of hunting. Mm -hmm. And so second amendment people and hunters have to see and recognize that incremental attempts to forbid a type of weapon or a type of hunting style, it's a threat to all of us, whether we partake in it directly or not. So we have to see the forest from the trees, the big picture. And that's where I think you can bridge the gap and the disconnect. So I'm, like I said, I'm hoping to do that. And I think my efforts are, are starting to prove fruitful. And I think people under appreciate that. And I can't be the per, the lone person doing this. Mm-hmm. And I, I want others to, you know, follow my example or, or use some of the resources that I use and, and employ um, in my work to do that. But, um, I don't want to be the only person. So I hope others, if they're listening and watching this will be inspired or perhaps motivated from hearing how I'm kind of navigating this terrain to do this as well. It's important. And we, we need numbers and we want more people who hunt, um, to also do second amendment and vice versa. I think people will be happier and healthier if they have more tools in their arsenal, do more activities. That's why I, I, I love doing hunting and shooting sports in addition to fishing, which I grew up with, and it, it makes me more well-rounded. So I think people will see how well-rounded you can be when you're not just doing shooting sports or just hunting. If you're doing all yeah. of it, you're going to be more Love fulfilled it. and happier. Love it. Well, my two cents on the Pittman-Robertson Act. Yes. I've been in the gun business all my life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the only tax that I know of in the whole, my lifetime, that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Now, yes. I don't know if all the money is going to where it needs to go, but it makes sense to me. And... The other thing is I wanted to add is that the general public that buys guns, the general public, not the extreme hunters, they don't even know about this tax. So mm-hmm. it has has no influence. And I, the manufacturers, if the guns, you know, if they didn't have that tax, guns would cost them 10% less to make. But I don't think they'd pass that on to the people anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think it's a very good tax. Right. I'm saying a good tax. I know. I, I know. It's, it's a paradox. It's it's weird to say that, right? 
Yeah, and and these other states are saying they're going to charge for ammunition stuff like that has nothing to do with the Pittman Robertson. No. Well, tax. at least there's a direct link, right? So the ten percent tax, whatever the the amount is, that we have seen that there's a direct link right. with the safety classes, the hunter classes, you know, the conservation efforts, right. all of that. So that's, I think, where you're saying it would be devastating if they remove that. It makes sense. Yes. I want to move on to um, this last question. We are getting a little tight on time. And I think I'm going to throw this one over to Dan to field because there was this article and Gabby, you're the one that brought it to my attention in the Hill where this guy suggests um, that what we did for a living uh, with our small family owned corner gun shop that the the what does he call himself uh the gun reform advocates well isn't that a pretty <laughs> little name for people that want to stomp on our rights um the gun reform advocates should push to make that illegal for states to say that you mr todd could not have had that gun store and served all of the people that we served to help give them the tools of self-defense that they use to protect their families, um, the tools of hunting, all those things. I've... So there are 17 states that would probably go along with that out mm-hmm. of 50 states or 17. Okay. Do they want more people moving out of their states? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what they're asking for. What are your thoughts on that, Gabby? Because I feel like that might also be a place where you know, the hunters, the conservationists, you know, maybe the casual gun owners out there might start feeling it a little bit more personally. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a maneuver that they're looking to because they see that it can't, they can't rather pass gun control at the federal level. It's stymied installed. So they're thinking, oh, you know, through the states, we can get more prohibitions. But as we're seeing legal challenges to gun control come about, um, Maryland recently um, was reprimanded for making it harder for residents and even non-residents to have to go through the hoops to obtain a permit. And they, I think, r- invalidated the the new permitting regime in wake of the Bruin decision and said, this is too onerous. You have to get rid of it um, because it's illegal. Uh, so the Bruin decision has really helped kind of clarify um, the fact that you can infringe on people's rights or create roadblocks or, or obstacles to it. So we're going to see them get creative in the States. What they've been trying to do is is uh, use the immunity clause. They say, well, gun companies and manufacturers are immune and and they're they're not held liable. So I think it also falls into this framework as well. Well, oh, they're implicated in these crimes. They're 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 complicit, you know, in mass shootings, and that's not true. And actually, there are a lot of liabilities. Excuse me, a lot of a li- lot of liabilities uh, that these companies you know, are accountable for. Um, I was reading through some case law that said that there are like five or six restrictions where they're not immune from being sued. So if they're, if the company is known to be complicit in the crime, of course, that's where the liability protection does not come into play, but they're less, they're less, um, I would say held liable, um, than let's say like other companies or other industries. So there's a lot of scrutiny placed on liability of manufacturers and in and uh, implications, you know, of, of people misusing their products. But there is the expectation that, um, and they know this too, that they know that they could be sued, you know, for any wrongdoing or mishandling that is directly attributed to them. But they're very careful to not, you know, sell faulty products 
Um, and and they can't be held responsible for the wrongdoing of a of a hardened horrible criminal. Right. And so yes, they can, so cars can, and everybody else should be able to exactly. too. They are trying to sue car manufacturers in Baltimore. They're they're saying that Kia and Hyundai are responsible for for making their vehicles more vulnerable to being stolen, which is stolen, ridiculous. Yeah. Oh come yeah. on, which is ridiculous. But but well, they're looking they're looking through. And I'll finish answering your question here. Um, they're looking to the states because they think states will be able to pass more prohibitions and, and place more onerous restrictions on lawful businesses like mom and pop shops. Mm. But if they do that, I think there can be a second amendment argument made to say, if you're trying to stifle my business, um, I'm a lawful business. I follow the laws. We have, we we're we're, we're ensuring that we're not liable for crimes. We, we will be, you know, complying with the feds and the state regulators. And, and we have to go through so many different hoops to operate as a business. We're not going to be, you know, rogue going rogue or, or disrespecting laws. We're law abiding and, and right. we'll comply with ATF and all that. And everyone does, and you have to, to operate as business. Right. I think um, it, it also will relate to, I think they're going to try to use, I think it included um, those MCC codes as well in that article. So they mm -hmm. want to go after them and, and make it so you have to comply with a category code for gun purchases. So they're going to use that as a hurdle to say, mm -hmm. if they're not complying, you know, under state law, then they won't be able to have their business license issued. So I think they're going to try to use banking discrimination, the force yes. of merchant codes they're and doing all it already, but... they are. Although some of these um, merchant code proponents have said, we're not going to be implementing this because it's hard to enforce <laughs> and you can't trace back to criminal wrongdoing with a merchant code. If someone especially got the gun off the street and not from a store. Exactly. Gabby, yesterday, exactly. just yesterday, I bought a, a box truck, company box truck, and I was denied insurance because we sell firearms. That's crazy. For that truck for a truck that I will never have a gun hauling in it. Well, so, so one so, company didn't want to insure us at all. And the other, a couple of other companies, the rates were just prohibitive. Right. And yeah. so that's, that's their, their other tactic so, is they just yep. price you out. So can I make a closing statement? My closing statement to you, Gabby, <laughs> is this. The anti-gun organizations. Wait a minute. Hold on. They're called gun reform advocates. Okay. Gun reform <laughs> advocates. Um, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, the only people that were driving gun rights were men. And men have a lack of communication skills. Oh. That uh, the, the thing I'm trying to bring out is that I didn't women say that. <laughs> are going to upset the cart for the anti-gun people. Right. I hope women so. are going to drive this industry so strong. I've seen it. I've seen it in the mm -hmm. last couple of years. But people yeah. like you and you are going to upturn this whole crap so we, so america does have hope i mean we will win because of the women and i mean i mean that strongly appreciate that because yes. they communicate they're very good at explaining and they research and they don't just say stuff <laughs> yes don't just say stuff. so seriously no thank yeah you. and and i will try to keep tabs on this at iwf too because i could work with our economic center with respect to banking discrimination it also falls in line with esg they could say you know mm -hmm. under esg policies uh we won't insure you or we won't you know allow you to open an account because you're engaging in you know not esg friendly practices like gun violence or whatever they justify uh the rejection of let's say an application is but it is important um to do that and, and states have all, already taken uh measures to do to prevent gun discrimination or gun banking discrimination i think texas is an example many red states have already done this as well 
But I think we're going to see maybe an upping of the ante through these discrimination practices under the guise of ESG or whatever, you know, acronym they can think of um, just to, to erode this and to infringe on lawful businesses. And I think they'll lose because they've tried to take this strategy before and it doesn't work. It gets mm-hmm. challenged in the courts. We have great lawyers who sue mm-hmm. on behalf of second amendment advocates and businesses, but they're going to use the, they're going to use a so-called free market tactic, but it's not, it's a very coercive Mm-hmm. Um, ESG tactic, which is not mm-hmm. market oriented to discourage lawful businesses. And that's where I think people will fight back in the States to prevent this type of abuse from happening. Or maybe um, if if they're succeeding in this effort with the merchant codes, with the liability clauses and, and all these other efforts they're looking to do. And also um, I think they want now, what was it? San Jose, California implemented the first of this um, gun liability insurance, which mm insurance companies, you don't need to know healthcare. You don't need to have experience in, in insurance per se, but they can't insure uh, in you or, or discriminate or force you to pay insurance for something you had nothing to do. So for, for a gun owner to buy insurance for a crime, they didn't commit, they can't insure, they can't approximate or anticipate, you know, what, what a type of cost would be premiums, whatever, because you, you can't be liable for something you didn't do. Yeah. And so it's impossible for an insurance company to, you know, estimate what that is because it's it's out of their purview and it's impossible to do this. And, and someone shouldn't be held liable for the actions of another person. Right. Debbie, my insurance went from four thousand dollars a month to eight, I mean four thousand a year to eighteen thousand a year. What? In, in my gun shop. Oh my gosh. Yes. That is insane. And, and so you go to another company and they say, Well, we won't we don't insure guns. Or you go to another company, no, we're not interested. So it's like they're going oh, to do yeah. that. They're go- they're yep. gonna do and they, they didn't break a law. Mm-hmm. They just decided they don't want to if you want to do guns, okay, you're gonna pay. Yeah. So there's all kinds of tricks they can still pull. But you know, I've Chase Bank uh denied me uh banking because we we're a firearm store mm-hmm. uh that I had been done have done business with them for like five years. They all of a sudden said no more. So they're gonna find their ways. Uh, even like the California, they said, okay, if you have a gun store, you gotta videotape every transaction and you gotta keep records of it for so many years. And they're just finding ways to make it where we can't. They're going to nuisance us out. They're going to yes. price us Nuisance out. out. Newsome us out. I like Newsome that. us out. Yeah. All right. We got to start wrapping up. But, um, you know, this has been a great conversation. And I am so excited and encouraged by all that you're doing, Gabriella. Um, and I don't know if you had any closing thoughts and we got off on a track. Um, but I would like you to uh, make any closing thoughts you have and let folks know how they can continue to follow all the work that you're doing. If you like what you hear and you want to support independent women's forum, especially our energy and conservation center, I would highly encourage you to do that. We have a newsletter. Um, if you want to chip in to support us monetarily, we welcome that as well. And we'll be unveiling some great projects. So definitely follow us, follow me individually and, and see what we do there. I have a bunch of other projects as well. I have a podcast, but um, you can go to my IWF profile. It'll have links to everything for me personally. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I have a bunch of different, you know, my hands in different pools. Um, so I think that's where I will send your listeners to. And I appreciate the conversation with both of you and how multifaceted, you know, firearms is and it's intertwining with hunting and, 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 you know, preserving freedom in small business and being able to, you know, operate freely, especially if you're lawful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but I'm, I'm encouraged. I, I will say a, a closing thought perhaps is like we had talked about, I think I'm encouraged that people will see that onerous regulations or restrictions 
will harm them. And, and I think it will encourage people to fight back against the merchant marine codes, the onerous insurance restrictions, um, maybe putting pressure on banks or perhaps becoming a shareholder in some of these banks' companies to influence mm. them so they don't discriminate against banking companies. We can do what the, the anti-gunners do. They've been going into mm -hmm. corporate boardrooms. So maybe it'll take uh, gun owner or uh, sorry, gun shops like yourselves, all of you banding together, regardless if you're small, medium, or large, mm -hmm. and maybe coming in as shareholders to chase bank or something of that nature mm -hmm. um, and, and changing their, their strategy. So I think that's what you have to do. Look for creative ways to engage in the market and um, and fight back kind of these corporate boardroom policies as well, because that's where I think you can have change. Mm -hmm. If not legislation, you can certainly in the private sector as well by banding together and uh, making sure these banks don't discriminate against lawful businesses like yours. Gabby, I want you to send me a text to tell me what you have for breakfast every morning because I want that energy. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't really have much day. I just had coffee. <laughs> I, I want that. I want that energy. That's awesome. Oh, thank you thank so much for all that you're doing, Gabriella Hoffman. Bye-bye now. I am serious. That girl has energy and yeah. it's really refreshing to see She's somebody amazing. young. Mm -hmm. But she said she has coffee. Ooh. <laughs> Dan is an anti-coffee drinker. I don't like coffee, but you know. I don't understand it. Like I drink coffee constantly. You would think that just the very, you know, essence of it coming yeah. <laughs> off well, of my being. I love the smell of coffee, but that's it. But you know what? <laughs> We're running late. We are. And I think that it's uh, time that we uh, pray for our nation. And Yes, but know. I do want to take a quick oh. moment. And I want to remind our listeners about a, a wonderful opportunity. Now, this is something that you have to be invited to do. So we, Dan and Cheryl Todd, are inviting you um, to accept our invitation to join this private invitation-only shopping club that is helping our family and millions of others to cut the cord on those huge corporations that use our own money. We were just talking about how banking does it. There are other huge corporations that engage in anti-freedom legislation and efforts and we give them our money so like mindlessly not thinking about it well this shopping club will help us cut the cord on those corporations that use our own money to diminish our freedoms and individual liberties from laundry soap to skincare right you to forgot about the main thing the steak oh the meat mm -hmm. is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. it would make you can't a, go hunt for it your would own make meat. A vegetation, a, a vegetarian, what, vegetarian change if they took a bite of the steaks that we get. Never had a bad one, and I'm not. I mean that Riverbend Ranch steaks. Yes, they and are so these, good. And these delicious just, snacks. Yes, they're very good. He calls them candy because they're that yeah. yummy, uh, but they're they're all natural. Um, you get to shop online as you need items, or what I like to do is set my order and forget it, right? Like, you know, you're using Amazon, um, where you, you know, set your order, you preset your order. Well, just switch it over, get these things now from a, an American based company, American made products on American soil, supporting American jobs. And they support the second amendment foundation and exactly. us and all kinds of groups. So that's where you need to go. Exactly. Every single order that you place 
a piece of that goes to the Second Amendment Foundation. They are the ones, the great lawyers that Gabby was just talking about, that are in the courts fighting for our Second Amendment rights. And a little piece of it comes to us, and that helps support the work that we do, all the travel that uh, we engage in to go speak around the country. And you can go there right now. It is patriothousehold.com forward slash GFR for Gun Freedom Radio, patriothousehold.com forward slash GFR. I get those emails. I look forward to seeing some come through telling me that uh, there are people out there that are taking their dollars as seriously as we do and wanting to keep them as close to home as possible and uh, supporting American-made companies. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, to Gabby, our amazing guest, thank you to all of our listeners all over the planet, wherever there is internet, we have viewers and listeners. Thank you for your time. Um, and if you want to go back and watch any portion of this show or any of our shows, you go to YouTube or GunStreamer, or the Opslin smartphone app. Um, and, you know, when you get there, here's the key. Please subscribe and hit the notifications. Please, because that tells those entities, those organizations, that we're valuable. This information is valuable. That the Gabby Hoffmans of the world and, and the subject matter experts that we bring to this uh, platform are valuable to you. And if you want to listen to the audio only version, go to our website, gunfreedomradio.com, click the on demand tab and binge listen to your heart content, darling. Darling. Absolutely. Um, and if you want to get links and, and uh, you know, all the bios of all the subject matter experts we've had, including Gabby Hoffman, Gabriella Hoffman, click on the guest tab. It's an ever growing database. And when you spend time there, we don't hate that. All right. Until next time, we are going to pray for our nation. We're going to pray for our leaders. What about the ones we don't like too much? Dan? Dan? Hello? Silence? And then uh, <laughs> goodbye, everybody. <laughs> now we're going to pray especially for them. And until next time. I'm not going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for people to vote them out. Mm -hmm. I guess okay. that's the same thing. We should pray. You for know, them. they should. You know, they're not doing a good job. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Yeah. Right? Oh, okay. He's going to work on that. All right. Thank you. Until next time, be good to each other. Have a great week and God bless. Bye-bye.